the Dead Sea, one of the most inhospitable places on the planet. At 1,300 meters below sea level, the shores of this desolate salt lake are the lowest place on Earth. Although the River Jordan, a sacred place for time immemorial, flows into it, there is nowhere for the water to go. Its only release being the punishing sun evaporating it during the course of each day, leaving just salt and mineral behind. This is very likely the saltiest body of water on the planet, more so than the Great Salt Lake of Utah. Just a few gulps of this liquid will kill a human in a matter of hours. Not only that, but deep sinkholes regularly appear all over its banks, threatening to open up and swallow those foolish enough to wander too close to the shore. Yet, all the same, people have not only lived here, but on many occasions thrived for thousands upon thousands of years. This is Bible country. According to biblical archaeologists, on one edge of this lake, the once prosperous cities of Sodom and Gomorrah may have once thrived. The similarly ancient city of Jericho and a whole multitude of other biblical sites are located only a few days walk away. And later still, salt merchants from the Bronze Age to the Ottoman era risked their lives to brave the harsh, deadly still waters of the sea. It was also here, generations later, in the spring of 1947, as Palestine teetered on the verge of a new war, that three young Bedouin boys, their ancestors having wandered the region as nomads for time immemorial, stopped at the ancient watering hole of Rash Feshka to rest their animals. The story goes that one of the boys wandered off from the main group. Bored, he began throwing rocks into some nearby caves. When he heard the loud crash of pottery breaking, he stopped in his tracks. Clearly, one of his projectiles had made contact with some sort of an item inside the cave. A single thought entered his mind. Treasure. He ran back down the cliff to tell his friends, but night was swiftly approaching. Upon investigating the next day, the boys were disappointed to find that the cave did not contain buried treasure, but a simple collection of clay pots, one of them broken with a number of ancient scrolls spilled out of it onto the cave floor. Little did they know it at the time, but those Bedouin shepherds had just made the single greatest discovery in the entire history of biblical archaeology and Jewish Second Temple period studies. It was perhaps the most famous archaeological discovery of the 20th century, and soon to become a cultural icon, famous the world over. For those pots contained the first of the Dead Sea Scrolls. This video is sponsored by Magellan TV, a brand new educational streaming service with over 2,000 documentaries to watch on all manner of different subjects. Magellan's producers and curators have brought together an astounding collection of documentaries on history, science, nature, culture, and geography. These include films, series, and exclusive playlists you can't find anywhere else. 
Like Netflix, this is a streaming service, but made just for documentary lovers and knowledge seekers. You can watch Magellan anywhere at any time on any device, directly through the high quality app, which also offers a wide selection of content in 4K at no extra cost. There are no ads or limited access at any time. And the best part, new documentaries are added on a weekly basis. Recently, I've been watching Tony Robinson talk about the ancient gods of Britain, as well as Terry Jones of Monty Python fame doing what he does best and talking about the weirder side of history. The first 100 people who sign up by using my link below or by going to MagellanTV.com forward slash history time will get a one month free trial. So what are you waiting for? Head on over and get yourself some free knowledge. In 1947, once more the dark shadows of war fell upon the Middle East, and to the world at large, as chaos tore through the region over the next two years, the whereabouts of those ancient scrolls discovered by the Dead Sea remained shrouded in mystery. Unbeknownst to the world at large, just before the outbreak of war, the Bedouins who had found the initial scrolls had sold them on to a Syrian Orthodox priest in Jerusalem for the meager sum of around $250. Those who read the scrolls at this time were the first to do so in over 2,000 years, noting incredulously that they were nearly identical to the Old Testament Bible that we know today. But, as we shall see, the Dead Sea Scrolls offered so much more. By the time relative stability and a new nation, Israel, surfaced by around 1950, the whereabouts of the scrolls still remained largely hidden. It wasn't until 1954 when an anonymous ad was placed in the Wall Street Journal that they eventually resurfaced. They'd been smuggled into America and put up for sale. When they were bought, this time by a travelling Israeli archaeologist on the behalf of his country, the price was an astounding $250,000, a thousand times more than the price given to the Bedouin. As news came out all over the world that the scrolls were the oldest copies of the Hebrew Bible ever found, having only 13 or so minor variants from the 10th century Aleppo Codex. As well as the huge amounts of money involved, the race was on for archaeologists and Bedouin tribesmen to find more of the same out in the desert. Eventually, by 1956, a total of 11 caves containing scrolls had been found. Five of them natural, and six man-made, carved out of the soft rock of the region. Astonishingly, all had remained untouched since they were first deposited there some 2,000 years before. They contained somewhere around 800 manuscripts. The scrolls were written in a variety of languages, Aramaic, Greek, Latin and Hebrew the various languages spoken in the region 2,000 years ago. Astonishingly, they contained a huge wealth of writings, including alternate versions of biblical texts, along with completely original works never before seen. Hypothesized to be a long-lost library, 
The scrolls provide a fascinating glimpse into the long-lost world of an extinct religious sect that existed at the same time Jesus walked the earth. The scrolls can be broadly categorised into three distinct sections. Firstly are the Old Testament biblical documents, mostly identical to the Bible we know today. Interestingly, one of the first scrolls discovered is known as the Genesis Apocryphon, an alternative version of the book of Genesis written in Aramaic, which contains a long-lost conversation between Noah and his father Lamech, which isn't in the Bible. Second are texts relating to the everyday life and literary heritage of the period, many being written in Greek and Latin, the languages of administration during the later Second Temple period of Judaism. Perhaps the most interesting of all, however, and certainly the most controversial, is the third grouping, the sectarian scrolls. These describe the life and teachings of the people who made the writings, a secretive, apocalyptic group who refer to themselves as the Sons of Light. Radiocarbon dating had only just been introduced by the 1950s and was deemed too unreliable and potentially damaging to be used to date the scrolls. Instead, paleographic dating was used, literally meaning the study of writing. Though later on, less invasive carbon-14 dating was also implemented. All of these methods conclusively dated the texts to the same roughly 300-year period, from the 3rd century BC all the way up to the 1st century AD, an incredibly important time for the history of the world. Also in the 1950s, just as the scrolls were being deciphered, the nearby archaeological site of Habat Qumran was investigated too. In time, most scholars came to agree that this site, only around a day's walk from Jerusalem, yet nonetheless completely isolated out in the desert, had been the base of the Sons of Light. Scholarly consensus often differs wildly on the Dead Sea Scrolls, especially given the sheer amount of research that has been done on them, large chunks of it bordering on pseudo-history. Yet practically all scholars do agree on one thing, backed up by chronology and later by archaeological evidence, that the scrolls were hidden away during the first Jewish revolt against Rome, a vicious conflict that lasted from 66 until 70 AD and ended with the complete raising of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple. Presumably, the fighting was so intense that the members of the sect never came back to retrieve their library. Leaving it to be rediscovered some 2,000 years later. So what of the secretive sect itself? The writings of the Sons of Light have captivated the world ever since they were first discovered, sparking literally thousands of books being written as to who they were, and most importantly for many, what they mean for Christianity. 
According to the scrolls, like early Christian ascetics or monks, the Sons of Light had given up their earthly possessions to live out in the desert in a communal existence. Whilst there, they attempted to gain wisdom and achieve salvation by communing with angels, a belief generally denied by mainstream Judaism at the time. We also find dualist, apocalyptic elements, perhaps derived in part from Zoroastrianism and reminiscent of later Christian heresies, such as that of the Bogomils and the Cathars. Unlike the early Christian community, however, the Sons of Light turned their backs on the meek and the weak. For example, rejecting the blind on the grounds that they could not see impurity, and the deaf because they could not hear the correct Gospels. They also seem to have been an almost exclusively male and Jewish affair having extremely difficult initiation rituals. Aside from this, however, as reflected by the Thanksgiving scroll, which lists various prayers and sayings of the sect, there are many similarities with early Christianity, sparking numerous scholars to suggest links between the two groups, with Christianity perhaps being some sort of an offshoot. One of the most interesting of the documents discovered is the War Scroll, clearly showing that the Sons of Light were waiting for a final apocalyptic battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil, called the Sons of Darkness. It even outlines battle plans and strategies for the coming war. You can listen to this fascinating and controversial scroll over on our second channel, Voices of the Past. And don't forget to subscribe for other fascinating historical content. The War Scroll is made all the more interesting by the revelation of another document in the late 1960s, called the Temple Scroll. This had been hidden away in a shoebox until after the Six-Day War in 1967, and includes detailed instructions for a temple that was never built complete with regulations and sacrifices, perhaps for after the successful completion of the war. Another famous extract is a commentary on the book of Habakkuk from the Hebrew Bible. It speaks of three prominent figures, all of whom have become incredibly controversial and written about. The first is the teacher of righteousness associated with all manner of historical figures, such as Jesus' brother, James the Just, and John the Baptist. Second is the wicked priest, perhaps either referring to the priests and kings of mainstream Judaism, or, according to independent scholar Barbara Thering, to Jesus himself. The third is the man of the lie, another controversial figure, interpreted differently by vast amounts of scholars. The third and fourth caves, however, sparked off perhaps the greatest amount of discussion of all. In the third cave was a scroll completely different to all the others. Rather than being written on leather, this one was made on copper, and quite simply, it's a treasure map. A detailed set of instructions to 64 treasures hidden somewhere, presumably in the Holy Land. 
Despite numerous attempts and expeditions, no one, in the 20th century at least, has ever found any of the treasures. Maybe, like Bronze Age burial mounds in Europe, and most of the Egyptian pyramids, they were discovered and looted in antiquity. Yet, every few years, a new theory resurfaces to the contrary, and occasionally new expeditions are launched to find them. It was in cave number four, however, that the greatest mystery of all was found. The scrolls here had fallen on the ground at some time in antiquity and smashed into tens of thousands of tiny pieces, some of them no larger than a tiny pebble. Over the next 40 years, the scrolls of Cave 4 were worked on by an elite group of mostly Catholic scholars, with no one else even being allowed to see them. Of course, this created all manner of conspiracy theories about Vatican cover-ups, and sparked a huge amount of hostility from other scholars. Especially when a story was leaked that one translation talked of the leader of the Sons of Light being crucified, suggesting a definitive link with Jesus, though this eventually turned out to have been false. Finally, by the 1980s, one professor and his graduate students were entrusted with index cards that they'd been given, known as a compendium, copies of which had been given out only to trusted scholars. This professor and his students went on to write a computer program which matched the cards up and reconstructed the original contents of the fragments. Though it's not a perfect system and can be fairly subjective, it's said to have around a 90% accuracy rate. At the same time, secret photographs of the scrolls were left anonymously on one scholar's doorstep and left at Huntington Museum Library in California. In 1991, these were officially released to the public, meaning anyone could access microfilm copies of them, which you can still do online today. As soon as this happened, coupled with new techniques such as infrared scanning, which allowed scholars to gain new insights, the floodgates opened. Along with a new resurgence in quality Dead Sea Scrolls scholarship, all sorts of pseudo-history appeared. Some of the strangest of these ideas include Jesus the Man by Barbara Thering, one of the premises being that Jesus didn't in fact die on the cross, but married Mary Magdalene and lived happily ever after. Also in 1992, Karsten Thede came up with the idea that there were actually New Testament scrolls amongst the others, though again, this isn't accepted by the vast majority of scholars. In order to fully understand the story of the scrolls, we must understand the context of the age in which they were made. We must go back to the very beginning. The Jews are an ancient people. Their roots stretch back thousands of years into the past further back than most. Though very little actual historical evidence exists for the exodus from Egypt and other such ancient stories, a good deal of information from the Old Testament is at least partially historical, perhaps best exemplified by the rediscovery of the Hittite Empire in the 1800s, long thought to have been nothing but a biblical fantasy. Arguably, the first verifiable period that we have evidence for 
is the pre-monarchic age of around 1400 to 1000 BC, a time of wandering peoples and warring tribes. This is the age of Abraham and Joseph. By around 1000 BC, a unified Jewish state was born, ruled over by King David, of David and Goliath fame, and then by his son Solomon, famous for the immense wealth of his mines. Though no evidence has been found for these, and for the building of the first Jewish temple, said to have been a splendid and magnificent building. The kingdom of Judea then enters a period of division between two kingdoms, along with a series of wars against outside invaders, such as the Neo-Assyrian Empire, until finally, in 586 BC, the holy city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Neo-Babylonian Empire. The first temple raised to the ground. Thus began the Babylonian exile. Though this was to be relatively short-lived, in 538 BC, a new power arose. Far from the slave masters portrayed in Greek sources, Achaemenid Persia under Cyrus the Great was an especially tolerant empire, allowing the Jews and various other peoples enslaved by their predecessors to return to their homelands. Work soon began on the construction of the Second Temple, along with another 200 years of self-rule. It is during this time that the Old Testament seems to have been mostly written down and, to a certain extent, standardised. In 333 BC, another mighty empire was to arise, dominating and transforming lands from Egypt to Afghanistan and remaking them in its own image. This, of course, was the empire of Alexander the Great. His arrival brought an end to the time often called the Biblical period. The purest and most uncorrupt phase of Judaism harked back to in future generations. When Alexander died without naming a successor, it sparked off a vicious 20-year civil war between his generals. Finally, by 301 BC, at the Council of the Victors, the surviving claimants agreed to carve up the empire. Judea became part of the territory of Ptolemy, one of Alexander's cavalry commanders, ruling from his stronghold of Egypt. Thus, whether the Jews liked it or not, the Hellenistic Age had begun. Many Jews began to speak Greek, which fairly quickly became the language of administration and governance, thus explaining why some of the Dead Sea Scrolls are written in Greek. Greek philosophy and science were introduced all over the Middle East, along with hippodromes, amphitheatres and gymnasiums, and a mixture of Greek ideas, traditions and culture mixed with native Jewish ones. Certain Hellenistic ideas even permeated Judaism, often without the Jews realising what was happening. For example, the Bible was translated into Greek, and in time, 
ambitious dynasts who wanted to get ahead began to resemble Greek princes. It's likely that at this time, sects such as the Sons of Light began to form, as a direct opposition to the new way of life sweeping over the region. Thirteen rulers named Ptolemy ruled Egypt from 330 to 30 BC, and at least seven of their sisters named Cleopatra married them, the most famous of all being the sister-wife of the 13th, who eventually married the Roman politician Mark Antony. Until around 200 BC, Ptolemaic rule extended north into Judea. Just two years later, however, another empire went on the warpath, the Seleucids, ruled by the descendants of another of Alexander's generals, Seleucus. They'd already ruled all of Mesopotamia and Syria since the death of Alexander, meaning many Jews had been under their rule for over a century. Life under the Seleucid emperors Antiochus III and Seleucus IV continued largely as it had before, with total religious freedom being allowed. Under Antiochus IV, however, everything was to change. Spurred on by his chosen high priests Jason and Menelaus, two men who sought to out-Hellenize the other in order to win the king's favour, Jewish life and rituals at the temple were increasingly restricted. The city also began to be modernised, and like the rest of the empire, made into a Greek polis. Eventually, Antiochus grew tired of the slow progress of reform, and pushed for quicker action. The high priest Menelaus went along with it. Not only were all Jewish practices, such as observing the Sabbath and religious diet, outlawed, but Jews were now forced to sacrifice pigs to the Greek gods at their temple. Those that peacefully protested, thousands of them, were put to death en masse. Some scholars see this movement as the origins of the Sons of Light. Finally, a wide-scale military rebellion broke out, led by a priestly family known as the Maccabees, who began a guerrilla war against Seleucid rule. Mattathias was the leader of the family, but it was his son, Judah, nicknamed Maccabee, meaning the Hammer, who, against all the odds, won the war. The kingdom was finally independent once again, and afterwards, Judah the Maccabee ruled over it as king in all but name. For, according to long-held tradition, Jewish kings had to stem from the family of David, Judah's two brothers, Jonathan and Simon, ruled after him, and the nickname Maccabee also followed them. Eventually, their dynasty would become known as the Hasmoneans, after their ancestor, Hasmonei. Yet, fairly quickly, problems began to arise. Jonathan Maccabee had himself named as High Priest in flagrant opposition to tradition, which stated that only someone from the family of Zadok could be a priest. Thus, many scholars associate him 
with the figure of the wicked priest talked of in the scrolls. The Hasmoneans, utilising a strong, well-equipped army, soon began conquering neighbouring lands and enlarging their kingdom. Most notably, the next ruler, John Harkonnes, not only conquered the Edomites, but forcibly converted them to Judaism. He also conquered Samaria, an earlier offshoot of Judaism, and destroyed their temple on Mount Essene. The survivors were all sold into slavery. From Aristobulus I onwards, the Hasmoneans went even further, using the title of king as well as high priest, upsetting religious groups even more. In order to pursue diplomatic ties with the surrounding Hellenistic powers, the Hasmoneans also more and more began to style themselves as Hellenistic monarchs. The next king to rule was arguably the most brutal of the bunch, and he even adopted a completely Greek name, Alexander Janaeus. Perhaps the most vicious event of his reign came when a Jewish sect known as the Pharisees opposed to the total religious power of the temple in Jerusalem, began to vocally oppose him. According to contemporary sources, he had all of them, perhaps 800 in all, publicly crucified in the centre of the city, but not before their wives and children were murdered before them. All the while, Alexander watched their slow deaths whilst feasting and relaxing on his recliner surrounded by his concubines. The time of the Hasmoneans was soon to be over. A reckoning was on the way. But as we shall see, the Pharisees weren't the only oppositional sect in Judaism. Not by a long shot. In the early 1st century AD, the Roman polymath Pliny the Elder embarked on a grand tour of the empire. It was during these travels, much of which later formed the basis for his masterpiece of early scientific literature, Natural History, that he describes a curious incident on the western shores of the Dead Sea. Near to the oasis of En Gedi, he describes coming into contact with a curious sect of extremely religious Jews living a simple, communal life out in the desert. Though he was there to investigate the natural world and the curious properties of the Great Salt Sea, this group clearly had an impact on him, later writing that they had existed for thousands of generations, possessed no money, and their priestly class refrained from marrying. He calls them the Essenes, and he places their dwellings just to the north of En Gedi. There is nothing else there besides Qumran. We get other references to the Essenes from the writer Philo, a Jewish philosopher from Egypt and product of the Hellenizing Age. But most important of all is the slightly later account given by the writer Flavius Josephus. Originally from a priestly family, Josephus fought as a general during the First Jewish Revolt, before surrendering early on and becoming a famous writer throughout the Roman Empire. 
along with the invaluable information he provides on both the successful Maccabean revolt and the unsuccessful war against the Romans, Josephus gives us first-hand knowledge of the religious sects of his day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes, apparently having spent some time living amongst the latter during his youth. During the first century AD, there wasn't just one standardized Judaism, not by any stretch of the imagination. Varying different creeds and schools of thought existed. The Samaritans, for example, are a much earlier offshoot of Judaism, splitting off by around 500 BC, before they were wiped out by the Hasmonean king, John Harkanus. The main dividing issue had been each having their own holy mountain to worship on, Mount Zion and Mount Gerizim. Another group mentioned by Philo were the Therapudii, an aesthetic group living in his native Egypt, and perhaps in Israel too. The most widely known groups, however, are the three discussed by Josephus. Firstly, we have the Sadducees, the main priestly group at the Temple of Jerusalem. Their mostly hereditary power seems to have stemmed from ancient aristocratic roots. As far as they were concerned, only priests at the temple could sacrifice. Therefore, they held all the religious power. They denied fringe theories such as the existence of angels and even the immortality of the soul, seen as an imperfection derived from Plato. The Pharisees, by comparison, wanted to democratize and transfer power from the temple to the household. They came up with other ways of worshiping. For example, reading the Torah and communal prayer. Finally, we have the Essenes, according to Josephus, probably only numbering a few hundred at any one time. They were most certainly a fringe group, desert separatists, directly opposed to both the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It's possible that there were further subdivisions within the three sects, like Catholicism, Orthodox Christianity and Protestantism today. Most scholars today equate the Essenes with the Qumran community who wrote the scrolls. Therefore, it seems possible that they were the sons of light. And if they were, it makes the Dead Sea Scrolls all the more important, allowing us an insider's view of the thoughts and beliefs of a Jewish sect, not only contemporary with, but very similar to early Christianity. However, as we shall see, they did differ from Christianity on a number of key issues. But what of the archaeological site adjacent to the caves? A link to the scrolls and the Essenes had long been suspected, but could it be proved? In the early 1950s, just as the Dead Sea Caves were being discovered, excavations began on the settlement just next to them, Kobet Qumran. One of the earliest archaeologists to work at the site had initially dismissed the place as a Roman fort. When a jar was found that was almost identical to one found in Cave 1, however, 
a link was established. Roland Deveau, the French Dominican scholar who led the Catholic team that first excavated Qumran, eventually came to the conclusion it had been inhabited between 134 BC and 68 AD, with a brief hiatus after an earthquake in 31 BC, which may explain why the Roman puppet king Herod isn't mentioned in the scrolls. Apparently built on the ruins of an Iron Age fort, dating from the time of King Hezekiah or Josiah, it was during this brief period of self-rule under the Hasmoneans between 166 and 63 BC that communal life at Qumran seems to have begun. Life wasn't easy, and in order to get water supplies, an intricate series of aqueducts and cisterns had to be built. Nevertheless, DeVoe and his team, all being Catholic priests, couldn't help but view the discoveries at least partially through a Christian lens, tending to liken the Qumran community to their own experiences as celibate monks, recording and creating written works in a cloistered community. Indeed, there are many similarities between the archaeological site and early Christian communities. However, as the scholar Lawrence Schiffman argues, there is always a danger of overly Christianizing the Qumran community. Though some see them as quasi-Christians, or Christians before Jesus, the people of Qumran were not monks led by a bishop who performed baptisms. That way of life simply did not exist yet. They were a group of Jews who performed ritual purifications and copied texts in their library. Furthermore, women are mentioned in a variety of the Dead Sea Scrolls documents, and amongst the 1,100 graves found at the Qumran Cemetery, a significant number of female skeletons were found. Either the sources such as Philo and Pliny describing the Essenes weren't strictly accurate, or maybe like later dualists like the Cathars, it was just the highest priests who were celibate. Nevertheless, there is a huge wealth of evidence at Qumran for some kind of a communal life. The site lacked verifiable private residences and had much evidence of inkwells and writing materials. Over 500 coins dating from the Seleucid and Hasmonean periods were found at the site in three large clay vessels, leading many to suggest that this was the earthly wealth given up by the members of the sect. We also have evidence of religious doctrine as described in the scrolls and in the contemporary accounts of the Essenes. The pots found at Qumran were of a unique type, being long and thin rather than the usual wide ones found in the Roman Empire. By having a lid instead of a cork, it was less work to open and didn't break the rules of the Sabbath. Also found at Qumran was evidence for the obsession with purity talked of by Josephus, with individual plates being found, very rare in the ancient world. But where did the community live? In the 1980s, archaeologist Joseph Petrarch explored another 17 caves around Qumran. Though he found no new documents, he did uncover significant archaeological data and evidence of habitation, all from the Second Temple period. Finally, between 1993 and 1996, another Israeli team looked again, once more investigating all of the caves in the region. 
looking to definitively link Qumran to the caves. After all those years of speculation, they found definitive proof, an ancient pathway between the caves and the settlement that can still be seen today. Occasional nails along the route which had fallen from loose sandals dated to the Second Temple period. Thus, the Qumran community may have lived in the caves themselves, as well as tents. The clay jars found in the Dead Sea Caves seem to have been produced in a hurry. Many blisters and imperfections cover their surface. It may even be that those who made them sacrificed their own lives to protect the knowledge of the sect. For by 68 AD, the apocalyptic struggle they had waited for for all those years had finally arrived. When the tyrant king Alexander Janaeus finally died in 76 BC, it didn't take long for civil war to engulf the realm. His sons Aristobulus and Hyrcanus not only vied with each other for total power over their father's realm, but they involved all of the surrounding powers, including a huge force of perhaps 50,000 Nabataeans that marched on Jerusalem from the south. By 63 BC, the hatred felt by the two men was so extreme that they made the questionable decision of inviting the Roman general Pompey, campaigning in nearby Syria at the time, to mediate between them. Of course, Pompey, having just subjugated the Hellenistic realms of Pontus and Seleucia, graciously accepted the offer, eventually quelling the war and setting up Hyrcanus as his puppet king. In 53 BC, however, another Roman army, this time under Pompey's rich yet incompetent colleague Crassus, suffered a catastrophic defeat against the Parthian Empire, opening up the entire Middle East to attack. In chaos comes opportunity, and another Hasmonean dynast, the son of the dethroned Aristobulus, saw it as his moment to strike. By 40 BC, with Parthian support, Antigonus had himself crowned the new king of Judea. It didn't take long, however, for Rome, now unified again and ruled by the second triumvirate in the wake of Julius Caesar's murder, to arrive back in the region, eager for vengeance. Antigonus attempted to rule, but the Parthians just weren't that invested. He was easily brushed aside by Rome and another puppet put back in charge. This ruler, however, wasn't a Hasmonean. As far as many Judeans were concerned, he wasn't even really Jewish. He was a half-Jew, an Idumean, one of those neighboring peoples conquered and forcibly converted a century earlier by the expansionist ruler, John Hyrcanus. Of course, his name was Herod one of the most hated yet misunderstood figures in history. Herod was a strong man. He was capable at what he did, and he was extremely loyal to Rome, being good friends with Mark Antony and subsequently Augustus Caesar. After working his way up from a regional governorship, he gained some semblance of legitimacy by marrying into the previous ruling dynasty. 
Though eventually, he would kill not only his Hasmonean wife, but his two sons from the marriage too, after they plotted against him. Renowned for his architectural achievements, Herod was hated throughout the land, perhaps best exemplified by the supposed murder of the innocents recorded in the New Testament. Nevertheless, references to Herod are curiously absent in the Dead Sea Scrolls, though this does seem to have been a short period wherein Qumran was abandoned due to an earthquake. Herod had ten wives, and upon his death three different sons succeeded him, ruling over various sub-kingdoms whilst squabbling amongst themselves. By 44 AD, the Romans had had enough, and the whole of Herod's kingdom became an imperial province. By this time, Qumran had certainly become occupied again, as shown by numerous references to Romans and the dates of the scrolls. A new religious sect also appears in the historical record at this time, the Zealots. Unlike their religious predecessors, they simply had one cause, the total expulsion of the Romans. In April 66 AD, crowds of people flocked to Jerusalem to scorn the procurator Jesius Florus. He'd just robbed the temple treasury, and the people were angry. In response, he had the crowd crucified sparking all-out anarchy in the city. The apocalyptic moment the Sons of Light had been waiting for for centuries had finally arrived. For this was the beginning of the Great Jewish Revolt. The causes for the revolt were numerous, including the incompetence of Roman governors, outright oppression, Jewish religious sensibilities, class tensions, and general social disunity, exemplified by the three separate quarrelling sects that went on to fortify three separate districts of the capital. In 67 AD, the famed general Vespasian arrived with three legions, 23 auxiliary cohorts, six wings of cavalry, and various other auxiliaries, totaling around 60,000 men. On their way to Jerusalem, Vespasian scoured the desert, mopping up fortresses and settlements one by one. Out in the desert, Qumran faced its end. Though we have no evidence whether the plan from the war scroll was put into action, the thick layers of ash and the remains of arrows in the archaeological record suggest that it was unlikely God came down to fight on their side, as they had hoped. By 69 AD, as the siege raged on, Vespasian was called back to Rome to become emperor, leaving his son Titus in command. In the next year, the entire city was razed to the ground, temple and all, men, women and children massacred, the rest sold into slavery. One last group, the Sicarii, around a thousand strong, 
made an epic last stand at Herod's imposing winter fortress at Masada, before committing mass suicide when the far superior Roman army finally broke through. Interestingly, a copy of one Dead Sea Scroll, the Songs of the Sabbath Sacrifice, was found at Masada when it was excavated in the 1960s, suggesting that some members of the Qumran sect may have fled to take refuge with the Zealots just 48 kilometers to the south, presumably dying there with them in 73 AD. After the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the Sadducees had nowhere to worship anymore and soon died out. The Essenes also disappeared from the record, probably all dying during their final apocalyptic battle, which may explain why no one came back to Qumran to reclaim the library. Even more so after another equally devastating revolt broke out in 132 AD. Interestingly, it was the Pharisees who survived, eventually over time morphing into the mainstream rabbinic Judaism we know today. But of course, there was another famous Jewish sect, still very low in numbers, but over time becoming ever more distinct from Judaism due to its acceptance of polytheistic Gentiles as well as Jews. Of course, the Christians. Long before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, scholar Ernst Renan links the Essenes to early Christianity in his 1862 book, The Life of Jesus. Though unfortunately, the book was also laced with a hefty amount of anti-Semitism, it also established an unprecedented new approach of investigating Jesus as a man and not necessarily a god. This was met with huge amounts of scepticism, perhaps most notably from Austrian scholar Albert Schweitzer, and the matter was put to rest for another half century, until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. For early church fathers, whether they knew it or not, the parallels between Jewish scrolls and their own were exceptionally important. We even have evidence for earlier Dead Sea Scrolls being found in the region and incorporated into early Christianity during the times of the Church Father Origen in the 3rd century, Eusebius in the 4th century, and Timotheus, a Nestorian patriarch and leader of the Syrian Orthodox Church in the year 800. The Dead Sea Scrolls aren't Christian but we can't deny the links made between their makers and the men who went on to form Christianity. With most Bible scholars arguing that the faith does seem to have sprung from a particular apocalyptic movement within Judaism, why not the Qumran community? There is some evidence for this hypothesis too. In the Bible, John the Baptist, an earlier teacher figure to Jesus, repeatedly scorns both the Sadducees and the Pharisees but not the Essenes, the same position the Dead Sea Scrolls take. In the New Testament, John chapter 12, verse 38, Jesus says the following, As long as you have the light, 
Believe in the light, so that you may become children of the light. This sounds very similar to the Sons of Light from the War Scroll. Baptism, a form of ritual purification, plays a key role in both the New Testament and in the rules of the Qumran community. But early Christians added to it, saying that it removes sin and transgressions, as well as impurity, offering anyone who wanted to join the chance of absolving their sins as long as they didn't transgress again. Perhaps John the Baptist had been a member of the Qumran sect before branching out and absolving travellers of their sins by ritually purifying them in the Jordan River, whilst living a hermit-like existence from locusts and wild honey. Maybe Jesus met John when he went out into the desert, or maybe he met and lived with the Qumranites. After all, the lower Jordan Valley is only 10 kilometers from Qumran, less than half a day's walk away. Did Jesus take the teachings of Qumran and democratize them for a wider audience, allowing non-Jews, women, as well as disabled and poor people to attain salvation too? Of course, this is just speculation, and we'll probably never know definitively what really happened. But, it's interesting to wonder, nonetheless. The one most important distinction between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the New Testament is the concept of a messiah. Though many scholars have tried to equate a messianic figure to the scrolls, this is by no means the mainstream scholarly consensus. Thus, the very existence of Jesus is the major difference and missing link between the two groups perhaps in itself suggesting a common origin before he rose to prominence. Even after the crucifixion, it takes a long time for any sort of standardized practices to take hold. Often in the first century at least, blurring the lines between Christian and Jew. The Ebonites, for example, mentioned by later church fathers, were a Jewish Christian group who accepted Jesus as the Messiah, but like Aryan Christians of the later early Middle Ages, didn't believe that he was divine. And there were sects within early Christianity too. James the Just, the brother of Jesus, for example, wanted to incorporate Jewish aspects into Christianity, such as circumcision, sacrifices, and dietary laws. Paul the Apostle, eventually winning out, argued that these had no place. In terms of popular appeal, Christianity was always going to win out over the Essenes. They were an insular and inward-looking elite chosen group. They didn't necessarily want other people to join. The Qumran community applied the strictest possible adherence to Jewish law, including dietary laws and circumcision. The mainstream Christian movement relaxed Jewish law as much as possible, permitting work on the Sabbath if necessary, such as agricultural work. Jews and Gentiles could join Christianity, which continued to grow at an exponential rate, incorporating formerly polytheistic people of the Roman Empire and beyond. 
Early Christianity had a very active outreach program, and still does today, with early church fathers like Thomas being said to have made it all the way to India, and early Christian churches very quickly springing up as far away as China. Finally, in the early 4th century AD, the religion became so influential that it took hold of the very heart of Rome itself, with the Emperor Constantine converting, and in the process, for better or for worse, solidifying Christianity's place as one of the most influential world religions. Just maybe, the obscure Jewish sect who called themselves the Sons of Light had a greater impact upon the history of the world than we will ever know.